Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Now, my last sermon is coming out of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Ten verses. They're all about Peter in a sense. And my hope is to encourage those of you who are new to faith or who do not yet have faith that faith can be yours and it can be powerful and it can be world transforming as well as life transforming for you. No one has missed the ship of faith. No one. And it may seem that your ship because of your age or because of circumstances will never be a grand stately ocean liner, but it's always destined to be a rude, crude fishing ship, a fishing boat of faith. And yet we have in these passages a man who was a fisherman and who became the most famous man in the church besides the Apostle Paul. The most famous leader of Christ's church. And his little boat became a great ocean liner that we are all sailing in as part of because he was the rock on which Jesus built his church. And so I want to encourage you that it is not too late, that now is the time to live by faith and that God is inviting you to believe in his son and to know the power that comes from it and the transforming power that is the hallmark of faith. Second, I want to speak to those of you who who do have faith and are finding it hard and who are finding it hard in a a particular way, which is the the way that Jesus so often warns, that if you have faith, if you know him, if you live for him, if you are a child of God by faith, you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to be made fun of, and you're going to be looked down, and I want to address you, and I hope encourage you as well. So our passage this morning is Matthew 16, 13 through 23. I ask you to stand with me as we read it together. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is the name that Jesus uses for himself. It's a distinctly uh, messianic, we call it, term. It refers to the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, but especially in the prophet Ezekiel. The Messiah who was to be God himself, all the prophets foretell it. It's God who's coming down to save his people The Messiah was known as the Son of Man, indicating that the Messiah is not only God, but man. So Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of Man, and it is the man who's doing all these great works, all these great miracles, but he's calling himself the Son of Man. It's kind of a a dual reference. I mean, it is that he's a man, but it's also referring to that Old Testament claim that the Son of Man would come who was the Son of God. And so Jesus is using a loaded term when he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, his disciples said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Simon Peter here, now let me remind you that when Jesus called Peter, At the time, he was just Simon. He said, you are Peter. So this isn't the first time we're going to see Jesus refer to Peter as Peter, though this is a time where he repeats what he did when he first called him. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
Now that's the son of Jonah. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. Now Peter is from Petros. Which is rock in Greek. You are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower. And so from here on. If not before, Peter is known as Peter, and he's not called Simon very often. Occasionally, Paul even calls him Simon at one point, but he's known as Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak through your word, through my words, through your word, Father. May my words line up with your words and may you find them pleasing to you, acceptable in your sight, Father. And may they thus not be mere words of man, but may they be words that are accompanied by power through the Holy Spirit, bringing and stemming from conviction, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we have Peter here in his heights and his depths, but never forget that the depths of Peter are possible and are in contrast to the heights. That Peter is able to be looked at and said, what are you doing, Peter? Because Peter does so many magnificent things. Peter got out of the boat and said, command me to come to you, Jesus, and walks on the water. And then falls. And we remember that he falls. But we kind of forget that Peter actually was the one who got out of the boat. There is a greatness in Peter here. And that greatness is based in faith. He's been called you of weak faith. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus said to him as he fell into the water out of fear. That's not all that's said about Peter. Peter is also declared the rock on which Jesus will build his church, a rock, a great man of faith, a man of incredible faith. And the thing that makes Peter so great is often cause for contempt for him today. We'll see that in a bit. Jesus is returning in this chapter to Gentile territory. He's been ping-ponging back and forth between Gentile and Jewish territory. In the Jewish territory, he's confronted by scribes and Pharisees, and there's confrontation. And this began quite a ways back, back in chapter 14, where they come to test him and and they ask him why his disciples are eating with unclean hands. And he says, Don't you know that it's not what comes into a man that makes him sinful or dirty but what comes out of him out of his heart it's your heart that's dirty he says it's not what you eat and so immediately after that he goes on a great journey up to Tyre and Sidon into Gentile lands 
I believe, I think the evidence is there that it was months long, months of, of traveling in lands where the Jews were not, and he's being welcomed, and he's being believed in, and he's doing great miracles. He comes back down from way north, 60 miles north, which is a long distance in those days. He comes back south to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but he's on the, the northeastern edge, which is still Gentile territory. He feeds the 4,000 and teaches them for three days. They're with him so long and so devoted to him that they've run out of food at the end of the three days. That's how they're listening. The Gentiles are eating it up. And they're not there for the food, they're there for the teaching. And then at the end of those three days, he gets back in the boat, he goes across the lake to Jewish territory where he's confronted again by, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a delegation that's come to ask him for a sign, testing him. And he tells them, you're not going to get a sign, and they reject him. And then he goes back across, and in the boat, he goes to Gentile district again. This time he goes almost due north of the Sea of Galilee and 20 miles north of the shore. If, if this is Tyre and Sidon, this is Caesarea Philippi, and here's the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and there he takes his disciples. There's no evidence in these verses, nor in the other Gospels, that this is a crowded area that people are following. This may, in fact, be a, a semi-private trip up to Caesarea Philippi. This is a Gentile city, Caesarea Philippi, established at the very northern end of what had been the northernmost tribe when the 12 tribes were united, the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan was the northernmost tribe when the ten tribes were cut apart by the rebel Jeroboam at God's command from the, the tribe of Judah, this was the northernmost place. It was here in this region, very close to Caesarea Philippi, that Jeroboam, because he didn't want his people now that he's the kingdom of the ten northern tribes, he didn't want them going down to the southern, the southern nation of Judah and worshiping in Jerusalem. So he, he made two golden calves and he put one right up here and then one down at Bethel. And, uh, and so he's, these are the areas that the, they worship. And this is a famous area. Now, Caesarea Philippi is close to the, the city of Tel Dan today, or Benias it's called, um, which was where Jeroboam put his idols. But this city is a little bit west of it, maybe a little north, two, three miles from that spot. And this had become, since the 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 era of Greek control and power, it had become a place that was dedicated to the worship of the god Pan, the nature god, the god of nature. And there's a mountain there, Mount Hermon, which was the mountain out of which the Jordan River forms and flows out of the snow of Mount Hermon. And there were grottos there, and there they worshipped Pan. It was notorious across the Roman world for the worship of Pan in this area. Jesus goes there, and there he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, he's surrounded by the worship of false gods. Israelite false gods, pagan false gods. This is the region that was famous for the worship of false gods. And right there, he asks his people, his 
12 disciples, who do people say that I am? What's interesting is that there's a, there are two places that it's said that the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, uh, two places where it's said to have occurred. One is Mount Tabor, south, way south into Jewish territory. The other, many people believe, is this mountain and this time. And I, I tend to believe that. I tend to think that it was Mount Hermon in Gentile territory in a location that's famous for the worship of pagan and false Israelite gods that Jesus goes on the mountain and is owned by God. This is my beloved son. It turns white and the glow and, and, and right here. One of the most wicked areas in this, in this whole region. Jesus comes here to declare his kingdom and its glory. And here he asks his disciples who the world says he is, and then who do they say that he is? Well, they answer, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah. So they're, they're saying, you're someone who came back from the dead. Obviously, there's, there's power in you that's not human power. There's something that's beyond what we've seen or the world has tasted. Maybe John the Baptist, maybe the great Elijah, maybe Jeremiah. Then Jesus follows it up and he says, who do you say that I am? And the first question had a plural and, uh, subject. They answered, more than one. But when he says, who do you say I am? The answer is not plural. It's not a plural subject, but it is a singular. And Peter replied. Peter speaks this time. They're not all saying it. Peter's saying it. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the, the name of the Messiah means anointed, as Messiah does. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter has come to understand things about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He knows he's the Messiah. And he's been transformed by understanding that. And Peter is one of those figures in scripture that doesn't get the respect he deserves. There are a few such guys in the scriptures don't get the respect they deserve. Samson is one, Jephthah. They're called heroes of the faith in the New Testament, but we often look at them as though they were messes, and they're not. Lot, that righteous man, the Bible refers to him as Jacob. People like to preach about Jacob, the trickster, the liar. He's no more wicked than, than any other great man of God in the Bible. It's, but we have our are characters that we like to kind of look down on because of the sins they committed. Well, you need to remember that the Bible is not like some of your mothers. You know how your mother couldn't see anything that you did that was wrong? Some of you? <laughs> you know, at a certain age, you just were perfect. I, I talked to some parents here, and I think, well, <laughs> Mary and their children were immaculately conceived. <laughs> no one's immaculately conceived. No human being. If you were conceived by man, you are not immaculate. You're, and that's true in Scripture. That God is very quick to say that every one of his great men and women are sinners. He's not a doting mother who says, oh, perfect. But everyone in the Bible is exposed. Everyone. Abraham, Moses, David, 
you can make your way through scripture and every one of them has their sins revealed. And so Peter is a great man and he has his sins revealed. There is another reason, however, that we tend to look down on Peter, at least in the Protestant world. He inhabits a special category, not just this category of great men that we kind of say, yeah, about, but... um, but it's a unique category with only one other member, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Peter and Mary are unappreciated in the Protestant world because of the way the Roman Catholic Church has used them to support false teaching over the years. In particular, Peter is called by the Roman Catholic Church the first pope. And out of this passage, the Roman Catholic Church has forged a doctrine that's not at all contained in Scripture of the apostolic succession of the papacy. It is the tradition of Rome. It's not the teaching of scripture and they'll acknowledge it. With each pope in Roman Catholic theology being the vicar of Christ, which means the one who stands in the place of Christ over the entire church. And indeed, according to Roman Catholic theology, the vicar of Christ, the pope, is over not just all the church, but he's over all the rulers of the world. He is the paramount voice of God in the world. And out of this teaching has come great abuse, great evil. But in our reaction against the the Roman Catholic teaching based on this passage, our reaction of saying Peter was nothing, we have misused this passage and done violence to it as well. So let me point out, it's simply not found here or anywhere in Scripture that Peter is first in the line of absolute rulers over the church. That is not true. It's... It's an untruth that's told to promote the, the love of power of men who claim to be Peters, to be popes. And it's not here. Yet the Protestant church, in reacting to Roman Catholic claims based on this passage, has made of Peter something less than what Christ calls him here. You'll find many in the Protestant world who will claim, for instance, that this passage where Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. They will claim that based on this that Jesus is saying this does not refer to the man Peter or even the work of the apostles of whom Peter was clearly the leader but to the statement by Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so often in the, in the Protestant world you'll hear people say Jesus is saying upon this rock I will build my church about that statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That that's the foundation on which his church stands. And I think it's just a tendentious misreading of the text. Tendentious means it's, it's to promote a, a place in an argument. It, no one would read this and think that. It's just, it, it's very clear. You, <laughs> you, know. You are this. He's talking to Peter and he says, on, on this rock, and he's called Peter Petrus, rock. And to say that, that all this promise refers to Peter's confession rather than Peter the man is not to give the man his due credit. This is referring to a man. Now, he's not alone. You know that in the book of Revelation, it says that the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will have a a wall around it and on the wall the wall will be built on 12 foundation stones each of them is named after an apostle so Peter is 
is referred to as one of the foundations. The other apostles are there as well, but Peter is clearly the leader. We can't deny that. The early church was built on Peter's faith. Now, he's not alone. Let me say it. He's not alone. He is one of 12, and each of the 12 is a foundation stone in heaven. But the character of this man stands out. The faith of Peter is central. He is unique, even among the apostles. He stands above John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, above John and James, the sons of thunder. He stands above them all. In a sense, this man and the one apostle who's called out of time, Paul, who's called later but has a vision of Jesus and is called to serve as an apostle by Jesus from heaven, these two stand astride the world. I mean, they are the makers of the world you and I know as Christians. Now, I'm not diminishing the work of the others. There are other books in the Bible besides those by, written by Peter and by Paul. But it's unquestionable that in the early days of the church, before Paul came on the scene, before Paul became the figure that went around the world, that Peter was there at the center of the church in Jerusalem, forging a church by his faith. Forging a church so that when he was put in prison, the whole church gathered to pray and say, God, release Peter from jail. They understood the importance of this leader. He was significant, powerful, and a wonderful leader of the early church. Now, Paul goes on and he expands the church all over the world. Does many things that go beyond what Peter does. But Peter is the, he is the, the man who's there at the beginning of it all. He is the one who gives it its initial form. And it would be crazy to say that because David rules a kingdom of millions, that David is greater than Abraham, who's the first of God's people. Now, Abraham's group was small. David's was millions. But no one would say that David is greater than his forefather, Abraham. In the same way, no one should say that Paul is greater because he goes on and builds on what Peter has done, that he is greater than Peter. Peter is great. Now, before we look at this faith of Peter, we must understand that the faith of Peter though it is filtered through a person who is a unique character, that his faith is not a reflection of his unique character. Faith is a gift from God. Jesus says this, makes this very clear when he says in response to Peter's profession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this from man. This statement you just made, this knowledge you have of who I am, this faith that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Peter is not a natural man of faith. He's a natural man, but faith transforms that natural man. Faith transforms every person that it comes to. Faith is the great difference maker in all of life. Faith in Jesus, knowledge of Jesus, having Jesus become our Lord. It is the great life-changing thing, and it doesn't come to us naturally. Imagine Peter's mother, if you told her, with her son growing up in Capernaum on the shores of Galilee, probably the son, as we understand it from Scripture, of a 
of a fisherman, which is not a lucrative, powerful occupation. It's a dirty, dangerous job. I don't know, you know, I mean, the best equivalent today is fishermen today who go out and commercial fish. You know, it's not, it's not a glorious job. It's not a job that you can make money at it, yeah, but you're not going to be at the apex of society. You're at the apex of the lowest echelon of society when you do this kind of a job. Imagine Peter's mother being told, 2,000 years from now, the story of your son is going to be told. 2,000 years from now, the most powerful religious leader on earth will claim that he sits in the throne of your son. Inconceivable. That's natural. Imagine Peter's wife. We know that he's married because he has a mother-in-law. Imagine Peter's dear wife. We don't know her name. Being told, dear woman, you know the day is going to come that your husband, this man who's in his late 20s, early 30s, we don't know the age, that this guy who comes home with fish scale, smelling of dirty fish, you know, day after day going out and saying, how was the catch? Well, it wasn't so good today, honey. That this guy is going to become the most famous leader in the world religiously for a thousand years other than maybe Paul. Imagine it. She's going to say, yeah, okay, let's go beyond the fairy tales. But Peter spends three years with Jesus. He comes to know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he is transformed. It is not natural. It is supernatural. Faith is always supernatural. It's a a vision of Jesus that God gives us, that gives us, as we come to know it and believe in it, power so that we become new beings. So the transformation of, of Peter... From the Peter who came home smelling of fish to the Peter who came home as a fisher of men. It seems like, you know, from as far as the east is from the west, that opposed. No, it should be the story of every life here. I hope it is. One day you didn't know God. One day you were doomed. One day you were bound for hell. The next day God reveals his son to you. You know, and it may take a month, it may take a year, it may take three years, ten years. But at some point, you go from not knowing Jesus to knowing Jesus, and you become a new creation. You are made new by God. I want to, you may despair of change. You may say, well, you know, I'm just the guy I've always been. Well, there's hope for you, and the hope is that if that's the case in your life, you've never really truly known Jesus. It's not that you've tasted all that Jesus has to offer and he's come up short in your life. It's that you've probably never really known him. I, I know this may be hard for you to hear, but it's actually a hopeful thing to be told that your, your life, if it's a miserable life, it's a, a life that you don't like. Well, it's not a Christian life. It's not a life lived like Peter lived the life, and your example is Peter. He's the rock on which you're supposed to be built. You're not to be different from him. You're to be like him because you're built on him. So there's hope in this passage, an incredible hope of transformation, of power, of glory. I I can't help but think of Peter's wife. He comes home and says, I'm a fisher of man, of men, honey. I'm a fisher of men. And she goes, oh, what next, Peter? She didn't know what kind of a wild ride she had 
Remember, Paul says, I don't bring my wife with me like some of the apostles. So apparently, Peter is taking his wife with him places. You know, he is a man. And he drags his family, and they become worshipers of Jesus, and everything is changed. God allow you to be changed. God allow you to see him. God allow you. Why do I say God rather than you try? Because it's a gift of God. I'm not yelling at you if you haven't seen Jesus like this and haven't been transformed and you're still miserable. I'm saying to you, yeah, God has to do it. But you can go to God and say, do it, do it, like that widow who came to Jesus for her daughter. You can do it like the Syrophoenician woman who came to him for her, for her daughter and said, I need it. You can go to him like the, the blind man we talked about earlier who said, give me sight, give me sight, give me sight. In fact, the Bible encourages you. Jesus encourages you to go to his father over and over and say, I don't have it, give it. I don't have it. The beginning is recognizing that you don't have it. Do you have the faith that transforms a life? Okay, now I want to talk in closing about the nature of this life, and I won't be long. And this is to encourage those of you who do have faith. What do we see in the faith of Peter? What do we see about a life that's a life of faith? I want to talk to you about the character of this life, and I'm not going to spend long, but I want you to know first, the the life of faith is not a contemplative life. I'm using a technical term here. The contemplatives were those who in the ancient church and today even in the Catholic church, and let me tell you, we don't use the word, but they're in the Protestant church every bit as much as in the Catholic. The contemplatives are those who say that the highest calling is to sit and contemplate God, all right? To sit and think about God, to let God fill your hours and days and you just sit there under the heavens looking up at the sky at God and saying, oh, you know anyone like this? They talk about what they've read. They're ecstatic over what they've read. Their whole life is about what they know about God. This is not Peter. Peter is a man of action. And you say, well, that was Peter before he came to know Jesus. Well, it may have been. But there is never a man of true faith who is not a person of action. You will be active. You will be doing You will be an even harder worker after you come to faith than you were before. Let me say, laziness is deadly to faith. Some of us do not have transformed lives because we are not going to God, and we're not going to God saying, change me, God, change me, give me faith, because we don't want to work hard. We really don't like work. And it's not just here, it's many places in life. We don't like work. Laziness is deadly to faith. This is why in 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns that the person in the church who's lazy needs to be avoided and kind of cast out by all the others because he's ashamed to the church. You know that laziness is contrary to faith? You remember the Puritans saying that idle hands are the devil's workshop? You can't be a figure of great faith and be a contemplative sitting at home reading your Bible until noon and then praying until three and then getting up and maybe cooking dinner? This is not faith. This is your pious baloney. It has nothing to do with God. The great men and women of God 
We're active, active, not contemplative. Not sitting and marveling, but seeing and doing. Second, the life of faith is one of, and I know that many of you have had this as a point of criticism of your new faith. You've suddenly become contrary. You, you don't agree. You don't just get along anymore, but you, you make points that other people think you don't need to make. You, you state truths that other people say, you don't need to state that truth, you know. You say there's a judgment, there's a standard, there's this, there's that, and you're, you're actually becoming kind of a fighter. And people say, oh, I don't like this Christianity. It made you a fighter. Why are you always so contrary now? Why can't you just get along with us and agree? Well, the life of faith is one of fighting. What does Paul say to do? Contemplate the good contemplation of faith? <laughs> no, fight the good fight of faith. Every man and woman of faith is a fighter, a warrior. And that's women as well. Women, no one fights bloodier battles in the world than mothers who train their children to follow God. Those are the darkest, most difficult battles that anyone on earth fights. You are the premier fighters of this church. But we're all called to fight, men as well. Deborah was a fighter. David was a fighter. Abraham was a fighter. Peter was a fighter. Peter had a sword. When Jesus said, how many swords do we need to have? I mean, let's go with swords. Peter says, I got my sword. Here we go, oh man, Peter, what do you need a sword? Jesus is the one who said, bring your sword. Remember that when Jesus is captured and Peter has a sword? And you know what? It's not a sword like my grandfather's sword that he carried when he was part of the, the Masons and the Knights Templar before he became a Christian. He had this splendid sword. <laughs> you think that sword ever saw blood? <laughs> I can tell you, no. My grandfather wasn't going to wield a sword. It was a, it was a showpiece. Peter's sword was bloody, wasn't it? He took that sword out and he cut off an ear with it when Jesus was threatened. He's a fighter. You know that Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, and if you've never heard him or seen him, there are some videos of him you can find. The great evangelist of like 1900s, 1910s, really he was, he was a marvel. Had been a prize fighter. And when he preached, it was like a prize fighter f preaching. God uses men who know how to fight. Read Martin Luther. That man knew how to fight. He was in a bunch of schoolyard scraps before he ever made it to be a monk and a priest. A guy knew how. You can't be a Christian and not be a fighter for the fight of faith. Peter is a fighter. Now, let me add, you are an offensive fighter, not a defensive fighter. Jesus says here, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you to Peter. What are gates? They are defensive fortifications at a city. The most strongly fortified point because it's a point of egress and ingress. You know, it's a place where people come in and go out. So it's, so it's heavily, heavily fortified. And it's there that you'd concentrate your battle, right? And what Jesus says to Peter is the gates of hell will not prevail against you. In other words, you're going to be storming the gates, and they're going to fall under your attack. Let me tell you, if you're only fighting defensive battles in, the, in your life, you're not fighting the fight of faith. You're to be storming the gates of hell. You're fighting to claim children for the kingdom of heaven, mothers. You're fighting. Those of you who teach in GCD and elsewhere, you're fighting 
an offensive battle against Satan. It is not defensive. If it becomes defensive, and it's just, oh, I want my kids to look good, you've lost, you've lost. You're winning the world. Third, faith acts. Now, this is something like what I said in the first one, but I want to say it again. And when you act, you're going to appear impetuous if you really are acting the way Peter acts. He jumps out of the boat, you know? Jumps out of the boat, says, hey, here he says, Jesus, no, don't do that. He's going, to, he's going to go after Malchus, the high priest's servant, with his sword. He acts, and it appears impetuous. If you have faith, you're going to jump into things. And in the Bible, we see constantly that those who know God and approach a situation and act based on what they know about God are seen as great men and women. Deborah saw a need. She said, I'll act even if no one else does. And the people of Dan who came down, who wouldn't come down, who sat up, and she in her song of Deborah says, you sat up there by your brooks and you wondered, should I stay or should I go? Should I stay? Should I go? You know, you guys, you have no faith. Deborah was out there fighting and you were up contemplating what you should do. Faith will look impetuous. It will look like Phineas who sees the man and the woman. Going into the tent, commit adultery right in the midst of God's plague on Israel for their adultery. And he runs up with his spear and through the two of them. Impetuous, wrong. No, God says, Phineas, you know my holiness. You will act and it will appear to everyone impetuous if you have faith. Fourth, faith speaks. Faith speaks. We see this with Peter. He is always ready to speak. Paul is always ready ready to speak. They always are speaking. If you are the strong silent type, you're just the silent type. You understand what I'm saying? If you're the strong silent type for God, no, you're just silent. Speak, speak, speak. Cultivate speech. If you say, but I'm a quiet man or I'm a quiet woman, well, learn to speak. Because God's battle is forged by the word of God. The offensive weapon in our armament is the word of God. And that has to be spoken. You will not win if you do not speak. Finally, faith is, as we see in Peter, it's big and magnanimous and glorious and just big. Big, big, big. No person who has faith is a small person with petty grievances, who resents others and has a list of people they don't like and don't talk to. Peter is big. We find in the book of Acts that Paul has to confront Peter because Peter has started not eating with the Gentiles. And Paul goes to him and says, what are you doing, Peter? How can you do this? You, you are betraying Jesus who went to the Gentiles. Why would you act like this? Public rebuke of Peter. The rock, you know, by Paul. So Peter gets in a sulk and the church splits, you know? No, it doesn't happen. Peter puts aside that behavior. And then when he writes his books, he speaks of Paul and calls him an apostle like he is and says that Paul's works are scripture, the word of God. He speaks of Paul in resoundingly positive terms throughout his life and despite Paul rebuking him publicly. You must be magnanimous if you have faith. You must not hold grudges. You must be 
The kind of person who understands you're winning at everything. And even when you appear to lose for a time, you're still going to win. That person doesn't hold grudges. That person is always happy. This is Peter. Let's have a great summer. Guys, I need you. I want you to help me in the nursery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word, for the example of Peter. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will allow us to have such faith and that we will be a church where this faith is seen and evidence, Father. Pray that those who don't know you, who haven't come to know this faith, will, will be granted it, that they may say to you, give it to me, give me faith, give me faith, give me, until you say, all right, you're my son, my daughter. I've claimed you and given you a picture, a knowledge of Jesus. Father, do this with all of us. Do this with our children. Do it with our parents, Father. May we know Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.